How does God want us to pray? Is there a right way to pray according to scripture? And if so, what is the right way to pray? In Matthew chapter six, Jesus actually tells us to pray a certain way. This prayer strategy of Jesus in Matthew chapter six has five essential elements to it that form a kind of prayer blueprint for us as believers. This small passage in Matthew chapter six has changed my prayer life forever. And I pray it helps you in your own prayer life. Let's jump into Matthew chapter six to see what the scripture says. This is episode session, week six, however you want to say it on prayer. And... What we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6 today, which is what we did last week, but we looked at how not to pray. Now we're going to flip that and we're going to look at how to pray according to Jesus. Now, Matthew chapter 6 is usually framed up as the Lord's Prayer, but something that I learned a couple years ago was actually, though it is taught by the Lord, it's not necessarily his prayer because he doesn't have to repent and confess sin. He doesn't have to change his mind or, or thinking about certain things. He has no sin to repent of. So this is the prayer of the disciples as given by Jesus. So what you're going to understand today, hopefully, is a better framework for how to pray. There's, a, there's so much that we culturally have been taught about prayer that we need to kind of let fall to the wayside. And there's a lot that we don't know about prayer that we need to learn. So hopefully by today, at the end of this, you'll know uh, what to unlearn and, and what you need to add to your prayer life. So we need to define prayer. Prayer is talking to God with intention and purpose as his beloved child and according to his word. Those key elements are so important to understand what prayer is. It's talking to God, obviously. It's communication, but it's with intention and purpose. It's not uh, this, this you know mindless chatter where I'm not even thinking about what I'm saying. And it's approaching God as his own beloved child according to who he is as we see in his word. And so the word of God, as you're going to see, is what uh, frames up our prayers and forms us how to pray. And then the purpose of prayer, as we've already seen in the previous episodes, the purpose of prayer is that God has determined prayer to be a method, a method of causing things in our life, in our world, in our culture, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our families. God has ordained, hey, prayer is going to be a method by which things happen in your world. And so we can either take him at his word and respond accordingly and pray and seek him, or we can miss that opportunity and miss out on what it is that the Lord actually wants to do in our lives. But his grand plan of eternity and, and salvation and redemption will still move forward, even if I don't choose to seek him. And so what we need to know about prayer, biblical prayer, is that you'll discover today it's something that's learned. Um, prayer is something that you have to, it's not in a classroom in a lecture with a whiteboard, but prayer is taught by the Holy Spirit. The word of God instructs us on how to pray. Um, a lot of people would like to presume that we're born with this inherent natural understanding of how to pray. I know how to talk to God. I, I have the God, whatever inside of me. I, and, and this is not true. It's not instinctual to us. There is something within us that cries out for communication with God and, and relationship with God, but we don't inherently, you know, on our own instinctively know how to properly pray and approach God. That's something we need to be instructed on how to do. So this is why you'll see something like in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, uh, there's a there's an assumption that the disciples bring to this, um, you know, when they approach Jesus, they say now, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, would, would you teach us, would you teach us to pray? You know, as John taught his disciples, they're still modeling a lot of what Jesus is going to do with them. They're, they're trying to figure out, Jesus, you should be doing this because John the Baptist did this. And they're trying to model that form of ministry after John. But Jesus will say, okay, when you pray, and then he'll go into what we'll see in Matthew chapter six, but I don't want to get to that yet. Some of us, you know, the tendency when we hear, uh, 
that we're supposed to learn how to pray is we get frustrated because we don't want to make prayer some impersonal uh, classroom, you know, degree that I that I gain. And at the same time, I I, I've, I resonate with that. I understand the, the sentiment behind that frustration where it's like, hey, don't restrict prayer to some classroom lecture. But we can't just say prayer is just this flowy doughy Ebby Debbie, where I just I just say whatever I want and anything that comes to mind, and God's gonna accept anything I say because He should take me as I am. And there's a lot of assumptions we bring to prayer that I hope today you'll recognize. A lot of preconceived notions you have about prayer and what you think it should be that I hope you'll recognize and go, is that biblical or is that not? We know first of all, Luke eleven one instructs us that I think there's a, there's a clear wisdom, there's clear wisdom to glean from this that we should let God teach us how to pray. In other words, we don't just know how, but again, there is the relational side of things. Then there is the, the intellectual cognitive side of things where God teaches, he instructs, there's guidelines, but it's, it's all framed up by relationship. So I don't want to overly, you know, I don't want to overstate the, the necessity of the, the intellectual side of prayer where God teaches and he instructs and there are guidelines and there are things I should pray, things I shouldn't. And there's a way I should frame that up. I don't want to overstate that to the neglect of just being transparent before the Lord and being honest and genuine and, and coming as I am. We should do that. But we have to balance it with at the same time as I walk with God, he's going to teach me how to pray. In fact, in John, 1 John 5, 16, this is what John the Apostle says. And I'm going to give you a few examples. There are a lot of examples of, in Scripture of God giving direction of what to pray, or he's giving direction on what not to pray, or he's giving direction to a specific people in a specific situation on, you know, how they should be praying. First John 5, 16 is one of those examples. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin leading to death or not leading to death, he shall ask, which is to pray, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that don't lead to death. Now, there is sin that leads to death. I, I don't say that one should pray for that. So, however you make sense of 1 John 5, that's not the topic for today. That's just an example of, hey, pray for this. Ah, don't pray for this. And I know this is going to frustrate some of y'all's categories because we've been taught to just be honest and genuine and transparent and approach the Lord as we are with all the baggage we have. And I do believe in being genuine and honest and transparent and all that stuff. Don't fake it. Approach God as you are. But that doesn't mean I get to decide what prayer is and how it should take place and what I should pray. God should instruct me on that. I should follow his prompting and his leading. And the Spirit of God should influence the prayers that I'm bringing before the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 7. This is what the Lord says. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. He's talking to the exiled Jews uh, in Babylon. Or not in Babylon yet. I think it is Babylon, actually. Syria. Yeah, this is Babylon. He says, uh, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. God is telling his people what to pray for. While they're in exile, what should they be praying for? Pray for the welfare of the city and the, the community that you're in. Even though you're in exile and you're a stranger, it's a very foreign community, I want you to pray for their welfare. And you'll find your welfare. In its welfare, you'll find your welfare. This is an example, and, and we can go like, we could probably look at hundreds of examples, but I, we don't need to. I just want to give you a few that really stood out to me. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus telling his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, hey, watch and pray specifically that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, this is a specific instruction 
to a specific group of disciples in a specific environment and situation. I think there's wisdom in this, but the instruction nonetheless is from Jesus on what to pray and why to pray that. Matthew 24, 20, this is Jesus talking about what I believe is the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, He says, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. He's talking to the people who are going, well, what are the signs? How do we know? When's it coming? He's going, well, uh, it's going to really, really suck for those who have babies and are pregnant and nursing. Pray specifically in that context, in that situation, that your flight may not be in winter on a Sabbath. So, again, this is just a few examples. Not getting into eschatology right now. This is just a few examples of God through his word, Jesus by his own words, telling us how to pray telling a specific people in a specific situation what to pray or what not to pray. Um, Matthew 9.38, it says this, um, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's something we should glean from and go, I want to pray that. That's something I've been praying lately for our community. Jeremiah 29.12, God actually instructs his people on kind of a few conditions regarding their prayer. He says, then, after what he's talked about, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. So he's telling them, you know, what conditions are going to be met in order for God to effectively listen with the intent to act on the prayers they bring him. So I could take you to Jeremiah where God tells Jeremiah, don't pray for this people. I won't hear you. He specifically instructs Jeremiah not to pray. And that doesn't mean we look at that and go, ha, yes, an excuse not to, I have an excuse now to not pray for my enemies. That's a specific person in a specific situation. So I'm just trying to show you that there's a lot of instruction in scripture on what to pray and how to pray and what not to pray. And if you live life with the assumption that everything you pray is accurate and proper and you need no teaching or instruction and everything I feel, I'm just going to bring that before the Lord and all my assumptions about prayer are right, you're, you're going to have a lot of disappointment when it comes to your prayer life. And so the big question is, how do we pray correctly? And I, I hate saying it like that because, again, it, it can almost suck prayer dry of the relational enjoyment aspect where it's like praying correctly, praying properly. Man, that makes prayer almost this like boring activity where I got to just follow. And there are some aspects to that sentiment that are true where there are conditions God has put in place for prayer to be answered. There are things we should be praying and things we should not be praying. There's a way to pray and there's a way to approach God. But all of that, again, is balanced with enjoying God in his presence and not being overly restrictive and and overly analytical because some of you are going to listen to this and go, now all I'm going to do in my prayer time is think about how I'm doing it right and where I'm doing it wrong. And, and it robs you of the joy of just being with your father in his presence. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to rob you of the enjoyment that just comes from being with the father. But as with any relationship, there are unspoken and clearly stated rules about how to relate to certain individuals. You know, as I got to know my wife, I found out both the unspoken and the clearly stated rules, you might say, of how we were to engage and interact in a healthy way. And so as I got to know her and spend time with her and invest into our relationship, I came to find out what it looks like to have a good relationship. So there are a few things I had to stop doing. There are a few things I had to start doing. And it wasn't like this this plastic, rigid, this is me putting in a nickel into the machine and I'm going to get the results I want. This was just me going, hey, I love this woman. 
And I want to do my best to interact with her in a way that is enjoyable to both of us. I want to know her. I want her to know me. I want us to know each other's you know, habits and tendencies. And now we finish each other's sentences. That comes from relationship. But you discover along the way how that person enjoys being related to and how they don't. So that, that's what I'm trying to get you to see is this is not to be some, uh, I don't know, some people want to be legalistic. and Some people love the just map out what I need to do to get the results I want. And that's not what prayer is about. Prayer does accomplish certain things. Prayer does yield results. I would say primarily, though, prayer exists to be a way in which we just relate with God and enjoy relationship. And you neglect that, you miss out on the bulk of what prayer is supposed to be. So as as we go through Matthew 6, I want to make this very clear. Um, We think of prayer, usually there are two categories that each of you is going to, one of you, each of you is going to think of one of these categories when you hear prayer. You're usually thinking of the way you talk to God throughout the day, that that frequent talking to God as I'm driving or doing the dishes or walking my dogs or taking my kids to school and just being in, in constant communication with God. And that's great. Others of you are going to think of prayer as just that, that portion of time you set aside in your day. You shut the door, you put your phone on airplane mode, and you say, kids, watch Bluey and mommy's going to sit with the Lord. You think of that, that small window of your day where you seek God, you think that is what comes to mind when you hear prayer. I want you to think of both. I want you to think of both. When we address Matthew 6 and Jesus says, pray then like this, we're not trying to fit these wisdom principles into either of those categories of prayer alone. Those are both necessary categories, necessary ways to pray. We should pray throughout the day And we should have a time set aside where I'm intentionally seeking the will and the heart and the character of the Father, enjoying His presence with no distractions. We should have both. And if you only have one and not the other, there's just so much more for you. And so when I talk about prayer in Matthew 6, when we go there, think about those, whether you have set aside times of prayer throughout the day, morning, noon, evening where you, you know, get in your room and just sit before the Lord or whether it's just throughout the day, I'm trying to be mindful of God. I want you to think of both of those ways of that we could pray as we navigate Matthew 6. So two things before we jump in. I know I've given you a lot of before the sermon. Here's what we need to establish. But two more things. Every kind of prayer is going to include these two things. Number one, biblical prayer, proper prayer, is going to be according to God's word. And I said this earlier, God's word should influence the way that we pray. God's word should uh, in, in, inform the way that I approach God and the language I have in my prayer time. God's word should frame up my prayers. The second thing you should know is that all prayer is centered around God as the ultimate focus. This doesn't mean you can't pray about anyone or anything else that doesn't. It means God is ultimately center and priority and motive. He's the ultimate motivation and the driving force behind everything we pray. Whether this is again, while you're driving and, and, or while you're setting aside the 30 minutes of your day to just seek the Lord, God is the central focus, his glory, his kingdom, his will, his provision, his heart, his character, his protection, his deliverance, all of that. 
God is the central focus of all biblical prayer. Now, Matthew chapter 6, we established last week what it looks like to not pray. So hopefully you got something from that. Now what you're going to see in Matthew 6, right after Jesus says, Don't pray like those guys. Pray like this. Let's read it. We all know it. Well, I'm assuming you do because we just grow up memorizing these things and mindlessly saying these things. It says, Our Father in heaven, or if you're King James, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, sacred, holy, right, uniquely different, precious, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I'm stopping there on purpose, not because there isn't anything that follows, but because that's, frankly, all I have time to explain today. There are five things, five specific things that Jesus calls us to pray for. And what you're going to see is these five things. I don't want you to be, again, legalistic about these things where it's like every time I pray, I need to pray these five things or God's not listening. These, think of these as five general categories that all prayer should fit under. Think of this as, you know, whether it's intercessory prayer or prayer for salvation or prayer of repentance, all prayer is essentially going to fit in under one of these five categories. So at least I would say what Jesus is encouraging the disciples to do is at least every day in prayer, these are five things to pray for. These are five, you know, things you should address in prayer, five main topics that should drive what you're praying each and every day. Okay. I'm going to give you all five up front. Number one, worship and thank God. Worship and thank God. Number two, surrender to God. And by the way, the notes for this message, this sermon are actually in the YouTube description below. If you don't see it or it's not the right document, just refresh the video and it'll be there. The second thing Jesus is going to say to do, surrendering to God is a part of that. So we worship and thank God. We surrender to God. The third thing is we ask for provision and care. Ask. This is the petition. This is the request aspect of prayer. Number four is confession. He's going to say, confess your sins. And number five, there's an, there's an asking for protection and deliverance and, and guarding our ways as we anticipate spiritual warfare. Now, there's all kinds of different prayers. There's praying the scriptures. There's the, the I don't know, the technical uh terms people use, but there's the prayers of, of worship and thanksgiving and adoration. There's there's praying to confess sin. There's praying and interceding for another. Uh, there's praying for the needs that we have. There's praying, you know, for our world at large. But a lot of prayer we're typically used to in our Western mindset, if you're watching, especially here in America, our Western view of prayer is a lot of asking, a lot of requests. And though there is a time and place for that, and there's definitely a need to do that, that shouldn't be the bulk of prayer. It's not just gimme, 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 gimme. As you're going to see, Jesus actually says the first thing he starts off prayer with, and I think this is intentional. You think about everything Jesus does, there's purpose and intention behind what he does, how he says it, how he frames it up. And he starts off prayer, pray like this, with our Father who art in heaven, King James, hallowed be your name. Why is that? Why not just go for the meat? Why not just, just stop dancing around, just get to the point, bring God your needs, ask him for what you want. Why, why don't we start with that? Why is it our father? What does that even mean? 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does it even mean? This is where we get into worship and thanksgiving as the one of the main focuses of prayer. We're not used to this, at least not most people in the church. We're not used to seeing prayer as a way to worship and thank God for who he is. We see prayer as a means of like there's a transaction taking place. I ask, you give. I request, you do. It's like a cause and effect. I'm going to pray. It's going to trigger something to happen in my life. We don't see prayer typically as a way to just worship and thank God for who he is. So, you know, this is why Jesus says, our father who art in heaven, you and I, as we approach God in prayer, before I bring him any requests, before I ask him for anything, before I bring him my stresses and anxieties and worries, I need to remember who he is. That is the most helpful thing I have ever learned <laughs> regarding prayer. Is before, and, and this is not, you know, every time you pray, you need to start prayer like this. It is, to be honest, it is just helpful. Anytime I engage with God in prayer, it is helpful to remember who I am approaching. It's very helpful for me to understand how great he is as I approach him in prayer. So I want my mind to be prepared and engaged to interact with the living God who rules all things as the creator of the universe and the king of all. I want my mind prepared to effectively engage with him. So part of you know, prayer is supposed to be, the first portion of prayer, I think, should be remembering and who God is, declaring who he is, rehearsing who he is, adoring who he is, worshiping who he is, just going through the scriptures, going through life, going through experience, going through what God has promised and going, this is who God is, and I need to remember as I approach him before I ask for anything. Because, and we're going to get into, oh, I should have said this up, up front, I'm just going to do a flyby on all five of these things today. This is just a brief summary. Okay, this is just the overview. In the weeks to come, we're going to take each of these five dimensions of prayer and really unpack them. But for now, I, I think some of you have gotten the gold you need, which is it is most helpful and beneficial to you to spend your prayer time, open your prayer time, start your prayer time worshiping and thanking God for who he is. This is what um, Psalm 63, 5 through 8 says. I think this is something that um, David is, is very good at based on his writings. Um, I think this is David's, yeah, Psalm of David. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Why? Well, when I remember you on my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. That's interesting. Most people spend their their time falling asleep, rehearsing the day, and thinking about all the things they did right or wrong, kind of reflecting, and then much of that time can be spent worrying about what I didn't get to today or what I couldn't do today or what tomorrow has, and the stresses of both today and possibly tomorrow kind of plague my mind as I'm falling asleep. David is different. As he's falling asleep, whether he woke up in the middle of the night and he's like, I gotta go pee, and then he falls back, he's, you know, tucks himself back into his nice little bed. He's remembering God on his bed. Either he's falling asleep or it's the middle of the night. He meditates on the Lord in the watches of the night. Something we can learn to do when you wake up, okay? When, when you wake up in the middle of the night, when you're falling asleep, 
something to think about is maybe the best thing I can be doing as I'm falling asleep, maybe the best thing I could be doing in the middle of the night when I can't sleep and I'm going, what the heck, man? I took my melatonin. I did everything. I worked out really hard. I took a shower. I did everything. I did everything right, Lord. When you wake up and you're like, I need sleep so badly. Maybe the best thing you can do is pray. And maybe it's not, I want to pray for a specific thing. Maybe it's just, I'm going to remember who you are. Maybe that will bring in the necessary peace and relaxation and sense of relief you need to actually go back to sleep. Maybe God is actually waking you up to be with you. I don't know. Just a thought, because David goes, I I remember you on my bed. For you've been my help. What does he remember? He remembers this. You've been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Your right hand upholds me. I mean, he, he goes on and on talking about who his God is. Why? Why would we start our prayer time worshiping and thanking God? Because you'll be surprised. We have an agenda that we bring to God in prayer usually, okay? And sometimes that agenda, that rough draft, changes quite a bit just when you remember who God is. And you're like, actually, I shouldn't pray for that. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Or I shouldn't think that when I'm praying that. I'm going to change the way I'm praying. I'm going to change what I'm praying because I just remembered who he is. And that's all I needed to pray more precisely. I want you to think of prayer as, I don't know, aiming for a target. Um, And you're shooting at that thing. Bow and arrow, pulling it back. You want to hit that bullseye. That's what prayer should be thought. I want to be as accurately aligned. I want to be as accurate to who God is. I want to be as aligned with his will. I want to be as uh, precise as I can in the prayers that I'm praying. Not in an overly restrictive, overly analytical way where I'm legalistic, but in a way where I'm like, God, I just want my prayer and my heart to match up with yours. And that does require us to not just remember who he is, but let that remembrance stimulate worship and thanksgiving in us. Because if you go back back to Matthew chapter 6, he says, our Father in heaven. In other words, I'm remembering where he is. He's the one who dwells in unapproachable light over all things, sovereign king of the universe, gives breath to all creatures, can shut this thing down at a moment's notice whenever he desires, but he won't. I serve the king that angels cry out, holy, 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 I'm approaching that God who is in heaven. He's not... He does, he's not restricted to this world. He's not restricted to time. He's not restricted to just my life. He's above all of that. I want to remember who he is. I want to remember where he dwells. And I want to remember that he is just above and beyond me as I approach him. So we don't just seek God to learn. We don't seek God uh, just to learn something new. Sometimes we, there is a time where God is teaching us something new about himself. or deepening something we already know and really hammering that home. But I have come to learn, and I think scripture would reinforce this, that a lot of prayer is actually just to remember what we've already learned because we forget. It's not that we need new information. I just need to remember what I forgot. So in prayer, we want God to deepen our understanding of what we already know. So our Father in heaven, I want to remember who it is that I'm coming before. And our greatest reason to praise God, to worship him, to thank him, is not even what's going on in our world or even what's going to happen in eternity or what God's promised. Our greatest reason to praise God is simply for who he is. What he's done, what he will do, what he's doing, all of that is just revealing to us who he is. It's the overflow of God's character. 
So what God does is supposed to show you who he is. That is the true value and treasure within our existence is seeing him for who he is. He's gracious and merciful. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's long-suffering. Um, he's a God who forgives iniquity. He's quick to forgive and slow to anger. He is sovereign and, and omnipotent, all-powerful. He rules all. I mean, you could go on and on. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He is self-reliant. He relies on nothing outside of himself. He's holy. He's otherly. He's a different nature. He's just on a different level than us. So our greatest reason to praise God, and maybe when you when you go, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, you're thinking, how can I begin to praise God when I don't see any reason in my life to do that? There's more than enough reason, but let's just start with who he is. Let's just rehearse the character of God. And and I am I'm confident enough to say I guarantee at the long after enough time of rehearsing who he is and who he's been to you, worship and praise will start to well up in you. This is what Psalm 63 3 says. David, actually a couple verses before we get to him meditating on his bed. He says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Why does David praise? Because he's so aware of how satisfying God's love is. And he only knows how satisfying God's love is because he's experienced the living God. He's walked with the living God. He's had uh, encounters and interactions with the God who is above us, but still you know, comes down to meet with us. So when we go back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, and we'll get into this in depth later. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It is recalling who he is. And it's worshiping him and thanking him for who he is. The idea of glorifying God's name or God's name being sacred and hallowed, set apart, holy. That, that idea um, of worshiping and glorifying him to express our love and affection for him. The name of God is the substance of who he is. So if you're wondering, how, why am I saying, God, your, your name, G-O-D, is so hallowed, it's... The name is not about the assembling of the letters in any language. It's about the sum total of who he is. So we're, we're going, you're holy. You are hallowed. You're sacred. But also within this prayer is this desire to treat God as such. It's not just God, you are this. It's God, help me to live like you are this. Help me to treat you as such. Help me to live like your name is holy. Help me to treat your name as sacred and set apart. So part of this is, you know, ask God to help you treat his name as holy. It's interesting that this is how Jesus starts this blueprint or strategy to prayer. And, and those, you know, I don't know, those terms can frustrate people. But at the end of the day, I, I do believe there should be somewhat of a purpose, somewhat even of a strategy to our prayer life um, without being so plastic and rigid and so planned out that it lacks heart. There's a way to do that. Um, but ask God to help you treat his name as holy. And his glory, this is, this is where I'll end on this point. The glory of God should be our greatest desire and concern in prayer. Because watch this, everything else that's going to come in this prayer, this kind of prayer blueprint, you might say, everything else is going to flow from this desire to treat God's name as holy. 
So my greatest priority, my, my first request should be um, to, to glorify God properly, to know him properly, to worship him and adore him and thank him for everything I had to be thankful for. And then everything else will flow from that. The surrender, the requests, the confession, the anticipation of spiritual warfare, all of that. So the second thing you're going to see is he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, I know this isn't explicitly stated, okay? So hang with me. This isn't me taking it out of context or adding in my own thoughts. We're going to explore this in depth, not next week, but the next week. Jesus says, imagine you approaching the living God and you're saying, God, I am asking for your kingdom to come. What does that mean? Well, it means you see yourself as a citizen, firstly, of his kingdom. That your citizenship is in heaven. You belong to the place where God dwells. That's where your real home is. And I long for that home. I long for that kingdom. I long for that reality and for God to invade the earth. And I, I am submitted to that. I'm not, you know, held to this world and the empires and kingdoms of our day. I'm not attached to any worldly human kingdom. I don't care. I'll, I'll see those things in light of God's kingdom, but I am primarily a citizen of God's kingdom. So this is why I pray your will be done. So the second thing in prayer is not just worship God and thank him for who he is first, but as you do, there is surrendering to God that's involved. So the second point is surrender to God. There is a lack, and I'll get to this in a couple weeks. I don't want to get ahead of myself. There is such a lack of reverence in prayer that people in general are missing. <laughs> there is people are, if there's anything I could, if I could magically just snap my fingers and add one thing to the prayer life of believers, it would be reverence. It'd be reverence because we lack that. We're not aware of God's holy name. We're not aware of his holiness and his majesty and his greatness and his supremacy. We're not, a, we're not even thinking about his kingdom and his will being done. We're like, God, you're my guy, right? I got something for you. There's this girl. She's she likes you, at least. And I'm lonely. I'm really coming to ask for your help because I'm a schmuck and I suck at talking to women. So God, would you just kind of help brother out? We see prayer as just like these scenarios where I realize I can't do something, so I should ask God and that's the only time I pray. Really? And we'll get to that later. I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I'm just thinking I used to do that. Prioritize God's kingdom in prayer. One of the biggest signs that you have appropriate reverence and worship and awe and love for God is that in your prayer life, not just times of prayer in the morning or in the, in your prayer life, the kingdom of God is a priority to you. Not just his glory and his name, not just his gospel, all those things are included, but his specific kingdom, his rulership, his dominion, the people that he reigns over the government that he establishes. That is your priority in prayer. It should be. When you see your life disconnected from the kingdom of God, I, I, I don't know how else to say it. You're going to pray wrong prayers. The reason people see God move in their life and see results in prayer is because they're praying the right things. And part of that is because they see their lives and their world as just part of God's kingdom. I'm not autonomous. I'm not independent. This isn't about my kingdom and my life and my preference and my agenda. It's about God's. 
And prayer should be framed up around that. So what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? Well, I think the most, the easiest way to explain and unpack that is you're praying, God, would you advance your kingdom through my life? Father, would you make me a better servant for your purposes, for your will, for your kingdom, for your gospel? Would you advance your kingdom through me so you can reign over more people and more people come under the kingship of Christ on the earth? Would you use me as a vessel for that? You don't see God's kingdom as part of your little world. You see your life as a part of his greater kingdom. There is a difference. So when I pray your kingdom come, I'm praying God reign over more hearts, reign more over my heart. Think about the way he sits on the throne. Think about the way he governs and rules. Think about what God's priorities are in his rulership. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Weirdly enough, same chapter. So it makes sense that Jesus would say, your kingdom come. Matthew's all about the kingdom. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things that God knows you need be added to you. So seek first what? The kingdom? Well, I'll do that once I... No, even while you're waiting, even when you're frustrated, even when you're worried, even when you're at a standstill and nothing's moving in life, even while you're going, God, you haven't. He's going, I know, but will you seek first the kingdom? There's no condition attached to that. It's not like when life is or when you are, when you got a minute or when you're not too stressed or after your nap, in all things, essentially in my prayer, in my finances, in my family, in my education, in my pursuit of a career, in everything, in my gifts, in my talents, in my playing basketball on the weekends and dunking on fools, in everything, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. This includes prayer. We pray for God's, it's interesting that Jesus essentially is saying, Where is it? He's essentially saying, pray for God's kingdom before you even pray for yourself. And again, we're not supposed to be be so strict about this that there's no freedom to switch these things up or what have you. This is just a general overall biblical blueprint for a time of prayer and what you should be praying throughout your day, each and every day. If you run out of things to pray, I don't, I don't think you are really, I'll hold that statement for another time. I'm not going to say it. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That comes before, give us our daily bread. Well, shouldn't I pray for my needs before? No, because if you don't prioritize God's kingdom, then you won't see your needs being met as part of his kingdom coming, and you'll flip the script and think your needs are a bigger priority than his kingdom. And actually, God intends to meet your needs through you seeking his kingdom, so it's beneficial to you to seek first the kingdom. I had a phone call just just last night talking with uh, another brother who's like, uh, yeah, I just haven't been A, B, and C, read my Bible praying because you know, life, distractions, stress, worry, bills, uncertainty. And I go, 
your flesh wants to convince you that you don't have time for prayer by by pressuring you with your life circumstances and stress and worry. And the flesh essentially wants to make you think, I don't have time for prayer because I'm too busy. When in fact, it's when you're so busy, you think you don't have time for prayer, that that's the exact moment you should be prioritizing prayer above all else. Prayer should be first. Honestly, God's presence, his kingdom should be first in all things. Not just before. Don't just think chronologically like, before I go to the bathroom and eat breakfast, I pray. I'm talking like in all things. Before I even eat breakfast, I'm enjoying God's presence and thanking him while I'm eating my meal. You know, or, or when I'm going to the bathroom, I'm going, thank you, Lord, for, for legs. Like, some people don't have legs. Like, I'm so thankful that you let me walk. You just begin to see everything. And it's not this, like, uh, I don't know, uh, stale plastic thing where it's like, I'm, I'm stressing about how to include God in this situation. And what if he doesn't? You just begin to enjoy life with God and see how he's in all things. It's the point of prayer. Prayer is to be my way of engaging with God throughout my day and reminding myself that my life and my breath and my existence is primarily about his glory. This is not for you to grovel and God stands above you like, give me more glory. It's you walking with him, having your needs met, being satisfied, being forgiven, seeing life with a sense of awe and and wonder and seeing how God's in that. All of that gives God glory. So there is a degree of surrender in prayer where you're surrendering your agenda, your plan, your will, your dreams, your vision board, even the prophecies that were spoken of you at some church 13 years ago that you're going, Lord, is that about me? You're surrendering everything, laying it all down, and you're yielding yourself to the king saying, in this time of prayer with you, Father, I am a humble servant. And I have to say that to you, not to remind you, but lest I forget. Otherwise, I'll go out there and live like I don't belong to your kingdom, and I'll live like I'm not your servant, and I'll live like you serve me. And that's just not the case. You've already done the service that I've needed to have salvation and have forgiveness. My life is in service to you. So my life is a part of your kingdom. Your kingdom is not just a part of my empire. So submit not just to his kingdom, submit to his will. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Easier said than done. But we need to see our lives and our world in light of not just God's kingdom, but his plan. What does God want to do through you? What is his will for you? Does it clash with your agenda? Does it clash with your preference? Does it go against what you wrote down on your schedule for the next year and you're going, I don't know, God, I kind of had this year planned out. And he's going, but do you submit to my will? Or do you try and cram me into your will for your own life? God's will is is perfectly accomplished in heaven. I would say so. God's will is perfectly accomplished in heaven. So, when we say your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what we're saying is, the way that your will is perfectly accomplished in heaven, Lord, I'm going to be a vessel and a life through which your will is done here on the earth. And I pray for more of your will to be done on the earth, for more willing, yielded vessels to follow you. Submitting to God's will is not mindless, It's not without 
uh, relationship, John 14, 15, and 16 addresses this. Jesus goes, I no longer call you slave. I call you friend. So praying for God's will is saying, your will, I know that your will gives you the most glory. Whatever God wants in the earth, in my life, in my community, it's going to be what honors his name the most, exalts his son the most, advances his kingdom the most. So I'm going to pray for that in my life. Lord, whatever brings you the most glory, whatever makes you more renowned in the earth and gets more hearts to see how amazing you are, your will be done in my life, even if it's different than what I prefer and what I planned and what I thought would happen, even if it looks nothing like what I thought as a 10-year-old my life would look like, I'm submitted to you. This is what James 4, 7 says. James 4, 7 says, Hey, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Now, of course, the context is people who have not yet submitted themselves to God, I believe, which, you know, is implied within the need for forgiveness and the need to be cleansed in their hearts. But the point is, there is a, there's a call on humanity to yield yourself over to be loyal to the Father and to say, ah, the kingdom of darkness sucks. <laughs> I don't want to be on a losing team. I want to be on the winning team. I want to follow the king. And part of that means sometimes you don't get to do what your flesh wants. You don't get to do what you dreamed of doing since you were eight. You don't get to do what you prefer in your flesh. But even when you move forward in the midst of that and do what God wants anyway, it's far more satisfying anyway. And you'll look back and go, man, if you let me do that, or if you let me have that, or if you let that plan work out, I would not be as 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 fulfilled and as joyful as I am today. And I'm so glad I followed you and I yielded myself over to your will. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 Here's what it looks like in prayer, okay? Here's what it looks like. It says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication or petition. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what is the way in which I yield myself to God? It does involve you making your requests known, but it also involves being okay with God's will being done, even if it doesn't answer your request. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll look at later. Saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. There is a preference. There is a human desire. But a yielding of that. He submits that preference. He submits that desire to the will of the Father. So praying for God's will doesn't mean you don't have a preference. It means you actually submit your preference to his plan. And praying for God's will, I'm sorry, you can't say I'm praying for God's will when you're not willing to do what he says if it's different than what you want. So people that say, I'm praying for God's will, but they have no intent of following God or doing what he says, you're not praying for God's will to be done. It's lip service. So praying for God's will requires us to surrender and trust that his ways are best. We'll get more. We'll get into that more in two weeks. The third thing Jesus says in Matthew 6 is he says, um, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. But this right here is where he starts 
the disciple, the person praying, starts to actually make requests of themselves. You know, up to this point, it's God, your glory, your kingdom, your name, your will, your earth, your heaven. But Lord, would you give me what I need? Give us this day our daily bread. Notice the us. Now you might say, well, he's addressing multiple people, so he's telling them how to pray, you know, collectively. I would say, I, I think what Jesus is actually hinting at is within my own desires and my own needs, within my own requests, I am aware of the needs of others as well. I'm aware of those who don't even know to pray for themselves. I'm aware of those who are not having their needs met, and I really want to be a help to them getting their needs met. I want to see them follow in the ways of God. You know, so I'm not just mindful of me. Mindful of, because again, you see yourself as part of God's kingdom. You're a part of a greater body. You're a part of a greater community, an eternal community, and a family that is just above and beyond what we deserve, but we're a part of it nonetheless. So this is where we, you know, we talked about um, worshiping and thanking God. We talked about surrendering to God. Now we're going to look at asking of God, but specifically it's for provision and care. So we'll get to this later again. I have to say that because I can't cram five hours of content into this one message, but we'll explore this deeper in about three weeks, the concept of asking and petitioning. When he says daily bread, okay, this is not just referring to my physical needs, but also being spiritually nourished today. And notice it's not about tomorrow. It's not about this week. It's not about this month. It's hate today. This is what Proverbs talks about where, you know, uh, the proverb is, you know, I don't want God to give me more than I need today lest I forget him or less than I need lest I steal. Just give me enough, God. That's the heartbeat. So you're going to see that bread is, you know, the kind of bread he's referring to, mainly physical concept of God. Give, Give us our physical needs. I have bills. I have a family. A house, an apartment, whatever it is, rent. I have a pantry that needs to be filled and a tummy that needs to be filled and I need, I need food to be nourished. God, would you just give me today what I need? It's interesting how the focus of prayer is not necessarily on tomorrow. There is an anticipation of his kingdom, but it's not, God, I'm worried about my needs for tomorrow. And this week it's, hey, just today. Because the assumption within worrying about tomorrow is that you'll be alive tomorrow. And that's an assumption we can't afford to make. I, don't, I can't for sure say that I'll be alive tomorrow, not to be morbid and dark, but I, I can't. I don't know when death's going to hit me. I don't know when I'll be taken from the earth and I'll get to be in the presence of God. I don't know. But it's funny, when we pray a lot of times about tomorrow or about the weekend, the assumption is that I will be alive to experience tomorrow. When Jesus says, hey, just give us today our daily bread. So ask for today's needs and not tomorrow's. Don't worry about tomorrow's. Let God handle today. And then when you get to tomorrow, this is what Matthew 6, 34 says, because I know you guys are like, I don't know, I've been taught to, I'm not saying there's there's something inherently wrong or evil about praying for tomorrow. I'm just saying Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Now, I'm not conflating praying with being anxious or concerned about I'm saying that if you spend your prayer time directed on tomorrow's needs and and efforts and what's happening, then you're not trusting God. Um, I'll say this. 
you're assuming that you will be alive to experience tomorrow and you're kind of overlooking today. It's so funny, we skip the day we're in because we're so ahead of the game trying to get to tomorrow. And actually the biblical mindset is today is the day he's made. I'll be I'll rejoice and be glad about today. I won't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why would I bring tomorrow's anxieties and worries into today? So daily bread refers to not just what we physically need to be sustained, but the spiritual bread of God's word that really sustains our heart, our mind, our soul, upholds us, helps us to follow God. So God knows your needs, and we talked about this already. God knows your needs before you ask, but you still need to ask, don't you? God's job is to answer. My job is to pray. My job is to ask. So I know some people have a problem with this because Jesus goes, look, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So why am I asking? That's a lot of people's trouble with this statement. You know, your father knows what you need before you ask. So why am I even asking? That doesn't make any sense. We trust in God to provide for our needs. Okay, that's the bottom line. We're not always aware of how dependent we are on God and how much we need him, right? We're not always aware of that. But when I'm aware of the fact that he sustains me, right, it just makes for a better life. Because I'll tell you, a life that's lived dependent on God is far better than the life that's lived as if you don't need him. Just, just take two different lives, two different people, let them live for 50 years. One person really lives each day recognizing their need for God, their dependence on God, their desperation for God. The other ones doesn't even can give God a second thought. Doesn't even think about him existing. And then measure those two lives after 50 years. My suspicion is the person that lives dependent on God will see far more eternal value come from their life. More joy, more fulfillment, more satisfaction. Not necessarily more monetary gain or financial material possessions, but more satisfaction and joy. That stuff can't give, that money can't give. So part of the reason we ask is because that helps me remember that I depend on God. If I have, if I look at all the food in my pantry and go, thank God, I ha- I'm so glad that I have a job and I work hard. You can slowly begin to trust in what God supplies rather than God as the source himself. There's a difference between the source of your provision and the supply by which that, you know, that source actually gives you what you need. So I'll say it like this. We desperately depend on God. We desperately depend on God, not what God gives. So if, I don't know how else to represent this. Two markers. One is God in this illustration. The other one is all the stuff he gives. My job, the finances, the food on the table, you know, the house he's provided. This is all the stuff that he uses to care for me. It's the supply, not the source, okay? We depend on God. So my prayers should be aimed at, you know, in the direction of I depend on the Father. I don't depend on what he gives. Like, practically, I have needs, Practically, I need clothes. Practically, I need food. I need water. I'll die. But I don't look to what God supplies as a sense of, ah, yes, I'm satisfied because of the supply. I'm satisfied because of God who actually satisfies me through what he supplies. A lot of times in prayer, we confuse the two and we take God out of the equation. We go, all the stuff you give, 
more, more money, more job, more food. Bills are piling up more, 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 more. And we start to trust in the supply as if that's what satisfies. You can have a lot of supply and no satisfaction. I know I'm going off on a tangent. This is on purpose. You can have a lot of supply and no satisfaction because you've removed the source out of the equation. God doesn't supply you in order for you to look at his supply and go, I, I, will, I look to you, I worship you, supply, I look to God. Because technically, again, God can, and this is what Haggai is about. Haggai goes, look, y'all making money, but it's just going in your pockets with holes. Y'all planting seeds, bearing nothing. You guys busying yourself, watering all the stuff, right? But there's no satisfaction. There's no enjoyment of that without God as the source in the equation. So when I pray, part of the reason that I ask God is to keep myself dependent on him and aware of my need for him. Even though he knows what I need before I ask, I want to be aware of the fact that it's him who's giving so that when he answers that prayer and gives me what I need, I can go, that was an answered prayer. That was a very personal interaction from God, a very personal response. So don't confuse the source with the supply. We don't trust in the provision of God. We trust in God as our provider. Some of you are still wondering what the difference is. Live life long enough and you'll find out. We don't trust in the protection God provides, but the protector himself. So I go, God, you are my protector. Any protection you provide is because you are the one who makes it possible. You make this supply enough. God can take a little and make it enough. Hmm? Or you can have a lot without God and it's still not enough because he's the one who satisfies. He's just simply using supply to satisfy you, but he's the source of it. This, we can go on and on, but the point, the second reason I think we ask in prayer is... I want to stay humbly dependent on God, aware of my need for him, aware of the fact that he provides, and it's a joy when I have my prayer answered. But also, we already talked about the fact in previous episodes that there's actually a lot that God intends to do that he will not do unless someone prays for it. And that, that, that category frustrates people because it blows your categories out of the water in some sense, and you go, hold on. I thought God is sovereign. God being sovereign doesn't mean that there are no conditions attached to certain things that he does. He has sovereignly put those conditions in place. So if God says this won't happen in your life unless you pray, there you go. Don't go, well, he will. No, God said he won't unless you. There's a lot of conditional statements in scripture. There's a lot of conditional actions on the part of God. It's not like he's less sovereign. He's like, my, my hands are tied. You're not praying. I really want to do this. Please pray, ask. It's he's going, look, my plan's going to move forward no matter what. There's some things I'm going to do no matter what, even if people don't ask. There are some things I'll do only if you ask. So I'm, I'm sitting here with open hands, ready and eager to do what no one's praying for. This is what James 4, 2 talks about. You don't have because you don't ask. And then the people that ask are like, we are asking. And he's like, because you got a bad heart. And they're like, ah, oh. bad heart, bad motives. No bueno. The fourth category of sorts that we see in this prayer from Jesus is the confession of sin. He says, forgive us of our debts. This is not Jesus praying this specifically. He doesn't have any sin that needs to be forgiven or debt he needs to be released of as we've also forgiven our debtors. That's the assumption, at least. 
So the word forgive, just a helpful way of understanding it. I'm not restricting the concept of forgiveness plastically to this um, aspect, but a way to understand forgiveness is a releasing of debt. It's when God releases you of the debt. Legally, justly, he's handled the payment. You're free to go. Not free to go do what you want, but free to serve him. Like when God rescues Israel from Egypt, he frees them to serve him. Freedom is serving God. Freedom is, is bond service. The assumption here that we're forgiven, Jesus is making, is that we actually are forgiving other people too. So there are two assumptions. God forgive us. It's believing that he will. The second thing is that you're actually forgiving people too. Now, We'll probably get into this a little more, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but a few things to know about forgiveness, and this is interesting. One of the things, it's like I started glitching. One of the things I I forget to do in prayer a lot is confess sin. Confess sin. Now, we've talked about this in length in so many other messages we've given. But the concept of asking for forgiveness is not saying, God, keep me saved, keep me forgiven. God, take away my sins. But I I thought he already took those away the minute you believed in Christ and Jesus cleansed you of all sin. And some people don't believe that when you believe in Christ through faith, uh, they don't believe that all your sins are forgiven. Well, it's only up to that point. I I strongly disagree. 1 John 1, 9 talks about if, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and And he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know why we would restrict from the vantage point of the cross that forgiveness and cleansing just to, you know, up to the point you you really come to know Christ. Let's say I come to Christ at 25 years old. Some people go, well, you're only cleansed for those 25 years. But the way to maintain that cleansing or the way to continue to have your sins forgiven is there's daily repentance and confession. I don't see that. I see a once and for all forgiveness. Hebrews is all about that. First John addresses that. Ephesians 1, 7, God, God forgives us according to the riches of his abundant grace. If you go down, Jesus has forgiven, has paid for not just the sins of his people, but for the sins of the whole world. So how does his forgiveness go as far as all of humanity, but only up to the point that they get saved? Where it's like Jesus is going, hey guys, I paid for everyone's sin. Every human being across time, everyone that's ever existed, it's all paid. And everyone goes, woo, yeah. And then he goes, well, the minute you believe in me, it's only up to that point. From then on, you got to continue confessing and repenting to maintain that or to gain more of the forgiveness for your future sins. And you'd be like, but I thought all sin from the vantage point of the cross technically would and from from for my life was also future so you only forgive partially futurey no he forgives all he forgives all it Ephesians 1 7 he, he forgives according to the riches of his grace so God's grace only goes up to the point that you're aware of your sin hmm? God's grace only covers the sin that you are mindful of and choose to confess openly? Or at the moment you confess and believe that Jesus really is king and you you believe in the gospel, are all sins, past, present, future, forgiven? Hebrews 10, 14, by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
Go down to verse 17. He says he'll remember their sins no more. So you're saying God only remembers or God's memory works like this. He's mindful of the sins we commit up to the point where we believe. And then once we believe, he's like, I choose not to forg- I choose not to remember those and hold those against you anymore. But any sin past that point, my memory's going to kick in and I'm going to hold it against you. Bizarre logic, man. So bizarre. So part of the reason we confess sin, the reason why I bring this up, is because some people, when they read this, they're like, yes, I need to, I need to say daily, God, forgive me of my sins. I think the concept of being forgiven, walking in forgiveness, there's a difference, and a difference, or distinction, rather. There's a distinction between having all my sins forgiven, right, versus walking in forgiveness, living like you're forgiven, accessing what God makes available through having forgiven you. You have eternal forgiveness, but there is still need on the part of the believer to recognize sin, not just with the intent to live different, not just to change my mind so I can live more holy and I recognize that and I don't want to do that anymore, but also sin can disrupt our sweet fellowship with God. Psalm 66, 18, Isaiah 59, 2, I think 1 John 1 touches a bit on that. The concept of you can be someone who is forgiven in the sight of God, but your experience of his nearness, your experience of his blessings, your experience of his presence is somewhat distorted and disrupted by your unconfessed sin. And I've given the analogy before of having a window or having the shades open versus closed, and the sun is always shining, whether I have it open or not, but I'm not experiencing the rays and the warmth of the sun's light unless I choose to open the shades and let that light in. And it's the same with God. He is your father. You are his child. You are forgiven. But the confession on the part of the believer daily is not to maintain salvation or to somehow like address sins that Jesus has not yet forgiven. And now that I'm confessing it, now it's forgiven. Otherwise, the, 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 it goes like this. Every conscious sin that is made moving forward as a believer, I have to be aware of and I have to recognize. And if I don't, I'm screwed. I'm going to hell. It's a weird way of reading the scripture. Very weird way of relating with God. Very weird. So the concept of asking for forgiveness on a daily basis through prayer is just, I want to be mindful of the fact that you forgive me. You cleanse me. You're the one who washed me and made me new. I, I, I don't want to live like this. I want to remove what is disrupting my enjoyment of your fellowship, enjoyment of your presence. I, I don't, why would I have access to everything but limit myself to how much I'm going to experience of all that he's given. If God has an infinite treasure trove of of blessings and experience of his presence and encounters, and he's going, I have all this available to you, and you go, well, I only want like 35% of that. Why Why would you limit yourself to what God says, give you, I've given my son, what won't I give you? Why do we limit ourselves? Well, we don't know it, but part of the reason we don't enjoy, part of the reason, hmm? not the whole reason, part of the reason we don't enjoy the fullness of what God has given us is because there's unconfessed sin in our life. Just confess it. God, I confess this. I'm going to change my mind. I want to live different. I'm looking, reminding myself that you're the one that cleanses me. You're the one that washes me. I'm forgiven in Christ and I'm going to live different. I don't want anything in between me and you and me sensing your spirit and walking by your spirit. 
Removal. I don't want anything, anything like that. Open the shades. Let the, let the light shine in. So, and then there's a, a call to extend the same forgiveness we've received. Now, look at this last part. If there's any part of prayer that is most neglected, um, I would either say it's this first part, our Father in Heaven, worship and thanksgiving, or it's the anticipation of spiritual warfare in prayer. Now, remember how I said the way that Jesus frames up asking and requesting and having your needs met, it's about today's needs, okay? So I think in verse 13 where he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I believe he's talking about the anticipation that today I'm going to face temptation. I'm going to face spiritual warfare. I'm going to be attacked on all sides by my flesh, by the world, by the enemy, by people who are opposed to God, by my own, you know, whatever. There's so many different attack points of the enemy on me. I, I'm aware of that. So God, today, don't lead me into temptation. Lead me right through it. Help me to conquer any temptation that comes my way. Deliver me from any evil. That's a prayer that I don't believe a lot of people know to pray. And this is not to bash or condemn or this is to say like, I'm trying to help you understand that even though you're on the comfort of your own couch working from home and you have everything you want, spiritual warfare is knocking on your doorstep at every turn. Every turn I have the opportunity to either submit to the spirit or submit to my flesh, submit to God's will or submit to my own will that is often opposed to what God wants. Thank you for that gift, Sherry, very much. So I want you to see this. This is a statement that startles people, but when you pray like this is true, you'll see victory in temptation and spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is so much more than in my, in my dream a demon attacked me. Spiritual warfare is, hey, when I was in traffic, I really gave someone the finger. I let my rage get the best of me and I didn't submit to the spirit. I was in the middle of warfare and I lost the battle. It doesn't have to be this overly supernatural like every time spiritual warfare, it's a demon. It could be your flesh. It could be the world. It could be people opposed to God trying to get you to do evil things and maybe there's a demon possessing them. But when we limit spiritual warfare to it's when a demon's attacking you. You just restrict, I think, you're, you're missing a lot of what spiritual warfare actually is. It's very simply, um, at the spiritual level, something is happening that is opposed to the things of God. Matthew eighteen seven, Jesus says this, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Meaning, bad. No, no. No bueno. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus is not exaggerating or just, you know, being a drama queen. He, he's saying there are woes, curses coming upon those who are temptations to sin. But he does say it's necessary temptations come. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile that with Matthew 6 where he says, hey, lead us not into temptation. There, se there seems to be a conflict, doesn't there? There seems to be a conflict. I'm praying, God, lead me not into temptation. But Jesus goes, actually, it's necessary. But you told me, not to, pr you told me to pray that God, would <laughs> that God wouldn't bring me through this. 
Why would I pray that God wouldn't bring me through what you call necessary? Here's how you make sense of it. Temptation is all around us. In every form possible, it's knocking at the door of your mind and your heart. In every interaction, it's all over the place. When you begin to recognize the temptations that bombard us from every direction, you realize how spiritual warfare is never, there's never a pause on spiritual warfare. When I read my Bible, sometimes that's when I get the worst, I don't know, fantasies or thoughts or, or the weirdest things or out of left field. And I'm like, I'm just trying to seek God. I don't even want that. Where did that come from? I've never watched or seen anything like that. Where did that come from? Why is my flesh so aggravated when I seek the things of God? I thought, I thought I'd get a break here, Lord. Can you just hit pause on spiritual warfare so I can enjoy you? Spiritual warfare and the enemy does not take a break. Temptation is necessary in the fact that temptation is an opportunity to glorify God by him delivering you and helping you resist that temptation. Temptation is necessary, but it's not from God. James 1.13 says this. You know, we like to over make everything so supernaturally demonic and Listen, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God can't be tempted by evil or with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. You already have the sinful desire within your flesh. But the enemy plays on that and lures you and and magnifies that, right? Really pokes at that. It's already present within you. The devil's not adding sin to you. You already want sin. But your spirit does not. Your flesh is like, sin, sin, sin. Your spirit's like, no, 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 no. So we know temptation doesn't come from God. But Jesus says temptation is necessary. And then he says, pray that God would not lead you into temptation. I think the concept of being led into, and I have not explored this in the Greek yet, but the concept of being led into temptation is very simply, God, if God is leading your life, he knows where along the path of your life As the good shepherd that he is, he knows where along the path of your life temptations are going to come, where he's allowed the enemy or the flesh of the world to come in, test you so that you can glorify God, stand strong, and God delivers you. He knows where those points are. God is not the one who uh, causes it or brings it or tempts. The enemy, as we see in Job, has to come to God. I think the flesh also in some capacity is limited to what God sovereignly allows to happen. So any temptation I'm experiencing, we know that it's not greater than what I can handle with God. It's not, you know, it's not uncommon to man. Every temptation I face, there's a way out. It's an opportunity to glorify God by standing strong. It's an opportunity for me to see how competent my God is, how capable he is when he delivers me through that. So when God delivers us from temptation, he's not leading us into temptation. He's leading us out of it. So then you go, well, why is it that God, as the good shepherd, leads us along the path of our life into what he knows is a temptation from the enemy? Why does he do that? Because Psalm 23 tells us that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with us. It's just the valley of the shadow of death. It's not the substance of it. It's not the reality of it. Nor is sin something that can overtake God. But sin is present in my life, even along the path that God has ordained to lead me on. So the idea of being led into temptation, I think, refers to being led into being conquered by it. God doesn't lead us into temptation to stay there or to be conquered by it or to be ruled. 
He leads us through temptation to the other side so we can see how capable he is, how strong he is. And also, we will probably want sin less when we see how capable our Father is and how good he is. So when I pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil. You know what I'm praying? God, every point today at which the enemy and my flesh and the world is allowed to attack me and, and tempt me, I pray that you would not allow me to be overtaken or conquered, but you promised to give me the way out. So give me the self-control by your spirit to be led out of that temptation. Lead me through it. Lead me through it. But also, here's another dimension to consider. Jesus says temptation is necessary. However, he's addressing specific temptations that are just a part of life and following God. There are some temptations that God would actually rather you avoid. And they're only happening and they're only present because we are stupid. (laughs) That's why. We make dumb decisions. We're foolish. We're reckless. We know our tendencies and we still, uh, I don't know, this time might be different, God. And we get ourselves in that same scenario. How did I get, how did I get drunk again? God's like, you knew where you were going. You knew who you were with. You knew what you guys were doing. We should go watch Netflix. You're not watching Netflix anymore, are you, Charles? You're doing other things that you didn't want to be doing. How'd you get there? You knew the steps that you always take to get to that place. Sometimes temptation is not the result of our faithfulness, but the result of our own stupidity. Sometimes we find ourselves in temptation because we know we have made decisions leading up to that point to purposely whether subconsciously or not, to purposely put ourselves in that temptation that God actually said, I would help you avoid that if you followed my spirit. So I do believe there's a biblical distinction between temptations that are ordained by God along the path of your faithfulness that he doesn't cause, that he's not bringing, that the enemy is the one who's trying to destroy you with, but God redeems and works out for good. And then there are temptations that God would rather you avoid. But free will kicks in, and we still have the opportunity to put ourselves in those situations that God would rather us avoid. And I don't think it's our job to go, oh no, did I get here because I'm dumb or because I'm faithful? It's the same response to either kind. God help me. The question is when you pray, are you aware that you are in the middle of spiritual warfare that never has an off switch. It never shuts off. It doesn't go to sleep. The enemy never stops attacking. Your flesh never stops being aggravated. There's just moments of heightened aggravation and lowered ag. Do you understand in your prayer time that today there is a spiritual war that you're a part of and you're engaged in warfare? Do you pray like that? That's the fifth category of prayer, is requesting spiritual protection from God in the midst of this warfare. The problem is many people don't pray like they're going to go through spiritual warfare. They pray expecting like God's going God's gonna to bring me up a rainbow, we're going to slide down holding hands, and we're going to encounter a a little group of butterflies while we do, and then I'm going to go to sleep and do it again tomorrow, but on marshmallows. Today is war. Your flesh hates the things of God. The world 
hates the things of God. The enemy and his kingdom hate the things of God. Do you pray like you need protection? Do you pray like God is the one who you lean on to deliver you? Do you pray expecting? In other words, use prayer, and we'll get to this in five weeks. You need you and I need to begin viewing prayer as a means to armor up and prepare for the warfare that's coming throughout our day or when we're in the middle of it. And it's really obvious and I'm going, oh man, this is really strong. Family's dividing, jobs falling apart. I kind of just want to leave this world. God, in the middle of this, I'm asking for your deliverance and protection. Don't just pray when you feel the pressure and recognize it. Pray in anticipation of that pressure and temptation. That's what prayer is supposed to be. Part of prayer is preparation and armoring you up and equipping you with what you need to face the things that you don't even know are coming specifically. You don't know what's going to come through grandma. You don't know what's going to come through your best friend. You don't know what's going to be in the middle of traffic. You don't know when temptation will come knocking on your door to say you want to dishonor God and you go, hmm, I don't know. I think our yes to God or our yes to temptation in the middle of warfare is going to be dependent on how we've prayed in preparation for that. So in conclusion, when you pray, here's a general overall blueprint that I don't encourage you to be legalistic about or strictly hold to or or think, I have to go in this order, don't overanalyze this in prayer, just generally every day. Pray for these things. Worship and thank God. Surrender to God in prayer. Ask and bring your requests to God. Confess your sins and anticipate spiritual warfare and ask for that deliverance and protection. And then you'll see that most of our prayers is gonna, are going to fit under one of these five categories. Petition, intercession, um, worship and adoration and thanksgiving, confession, repentance, all this stuff. So those are the five categories we're going to explore in depth over the next five weeks as it relates to prayer. All right. If you guys did not already know this, for those that are new, you just found your way here, you accidentally clicked our stream, this is Above Reproach Ministry. And you can visit abovereproachministry.com to see everything that we have available. Let me just list a few things for you that you might not know about. If you are wanting to learn how to read the Bible and go deeper and study and maybe you're bored, overwhelmed, frustrated with the Bible, whatever it is, um, we have a completely free 40-day Bible study program. So I'll just take you through all the free stuff we have. Our free online church on the Discord app is available. All the links are in the description below this YouTube video or at abovereproachministry.com. We have an online church community. It's a bunch of people that gather and fellowship. So if you're looking for godly community, come join Obviously, the YouTube channel, we have a podcast, so all these messages end up on podcast wherever you listen. We have a second podcast, Above Reproach Church Podcast, for the local church. We have Bible study courses, and all these, all of these are free. We have a 40-day Bible study course, a 27-day and an 11-day, so pick whichever one you're more comfortable with. You're going to really learn how to read the Bible in depth and have some skills, add some skills to your tool belt you didn't maybe previously have. And so uh, they're online, self-paced, and free. We have free devotional studies that you can start reading throughout the week, Bible study workshops that will help you, and all of my sermon notes uh, from all these sermon series that I do over the last year and a half, two years, are available and free right here. 
and Bible study worksheets. So all these free resources are made available through generous supporters like you guys that make this all possible. That's why anyone around the world can enjoy all these free resources, teachings, curriculums, courses, worksheets, all the stuff. Um, so thank you guys that support and make this possible for those of you that believe in what God is doing here. Um, you can also order a copy of my book right here. Just click this. It'll take you to Amazon. My book is Fruitful, The Essential Keys to Living the Most Abundant, Satisfying Christian Life This Side of Heaven. You can sample it right here as well as um, get some merch. If you're a new believer, click here. I encourage you, if you're a new believer or you just gave your life to Christ or you just came back to God and your faith has been refueled, check out all the free resources that we recommend as a new believer, whether they're foundational teachings, Bible study resources, or community resources. And then if you'd like to give and make this possible, continuing, moving forward, I have a wife and two kids. This is my full-time gig. This is what I do to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you'd like to partner with us and you believe in what God is doing here, you can go to donate right here or above reproachministry.com slash donate. And you can send a check. Now the P.O. Box is different because I'm in South Carolina. P.O. Box 509 Inman, South Carolina 29349. Or you can donate through debit or credit card, give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, or become a monthly supporter on Patreon or get some church merch, which is lit or dope, whatever word you're using now. Um, and I think that's it. Uh, hit the church book. That's it. And then tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll go live. Not yet sure. Not yet sure. Not sure yet. Not sure yet sure. But I will find out. I need to look at my schedule and know what I have this week going on. But that's all I got. If um, This live is going to be... Uh, while it's processing, it's going to be privated in the next 10 minutes. So catch up fast and listen if you're not caught up. And then it'll be rebroadcasted later. Um, I think at five. All right. And I think that's all I got for you guys. Thanks for watching. And I'll see you guys next week for part seven, week seven of how to pray. All right. You guys keep moving towards Jesus. It's my biggest. Um, prayer for you guys. Keep moving towards Jesus. And I'll see you guys next week or tomorrow if I have a Q&A. All right.